This morning's word comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be reading starting in chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. join me in a brief moment of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I just echo the words that have already been prayed, Father. We are so thankful to have been able to uh, practice and observe the sacrament of baptism, Lord. We thank you for the five individuals who were willing, desirous to undergo baptism in obedience to your command. We thank you for the work that you have done in their lives that has been publicly displayed, Lord God. And Father, we pray that as we now begin to look at what your word says about baptism, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would guide us, that you would uh, illumine our minds pray that you would enable us to understand the significance and the meaning of this ordinance that you've given to your church. Um, We pray, I pray, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, it would uh, land not only on those in this room who have yet to be baptized and to make a profession of faith, but Father, on all those who have been baptized, that we would be reminded by your word, what it means, Lord God, and how it ought to continue to impact our lives uh, throughout the Christian life. So, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, this morning, we are uh, obviously going to be talking about the sacrament of uh, baptism, and um, which can also be described as the right of initiation into the new covenant community. And uh, we're going to be talking about this for, well, two reasons. One, as as I've already stated, this is the rite of initiation into the new covenant community, uh, also known as uh, one of the two signs and seals given to the new covenant community by God, specifically by Christ. And... um, Because God gave two rights, Uh, Christ, through Christ, gave two rights, two two signs and seals for the new covenant. One is baptism, the rite of initiation, how we are brought into uh, the visible church, as it were. And the second, the Lord's Supper, which we will talk about next week, which is the rite of remembrance, the rite of remembrance. And, uh, but today, as we've already done, we not only get to learn about baptism, but earlier, if you were here, uh, we got to witness 
uh, a baptism. So first we had the, the object lesson, uh, and now we're going to have the actual lesson as to what that is all about. Of course, we got a little bit of a snippet. Um, we're going to look again at Romans chapter 6 uh, this morning, but there is more than just Romans uh, chapter 6. And so in talking about baptism, there's several questions that inevitably come up when we talk about it. And the first is, why do we call it a sacrament? Why do I call it a sacrament? Why do I use that uh, term, particularly in Baptist churches and independent churches, in your more contemporary evangelical churches? Uh, Many churches tend to shy away from that kind of language. It seems very Romanish to call it a sacrament. And um, why do we do that? And why do we refer to it that way? I think it's a good word. And I never like to surrender to surrender those kind of words that link us to our historic Christian heritage. And the word sacrament is one of those words. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that comes from the old Latin sacramentum. And uh, it simply means, the Latin word sacramentum, a, a holy rite or a holy ritual. And, and that really is what baptism is. Right? It's, a, it's a holy thing that we do, and so is the Lord's Supper as well. It was uh, used, first used in the, uh, the Latin Vulgate, translated by St. Jerome in the 5th century, and he used it to translate the Greek word mysterion, which in English we translate as a mystery. Uh, but he used the word sacramentum, and thus it is a word that has been used to describe the Lord's Supper, and baptism at least since the 5th century. And so I do think it's an important word that we ought to be familiar with, and I don't think there's a better word to describe what we do in terms of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Second question that often comes up is where does the practice of baptism come from? Why? Why do we do this, right? Um, Well, the concept of baptism does find its origins in the Old Testament. The concept of baptism finds its origins in the Old Testament, specifically with the ordination of the priest, uh, the priesthood in Exodus chapter 29, specifically in Exodus 29.4. There God commands Moses that when the priests are consecrated, Aaron and his sons, in other words, ordained when they are installed, part of that ceremony is they were first to undergo a ceremonial washing, a ceremonial cleansing to symbolize that they have been cleansed of all of their sins and of all their impurity, and they have been set apart to God. And so that is where the concept begins. However, New Testament baptism, as it is practiced and understood today, really begins with John the Baptist. What we see John the Baptist doing and the way he did it, and really even the reason he did it, is still the same reason why we do baptism today in the New Testament church, right? In the first part of all of the Gospels, we're told that John came proclaiming and practicing a baptism of repentance, right? John was preaching a message of repentance. Repent, turn your heart to God, and then be baptized as a symbol of that repentance, That's still part of why we do baptism. That is one of the reasons why we do it. Uh, Secondly, when we talk about uh, where we get the practice of baptism from, 
We get that from Christ as well, who both sets the example for us to follow and commands baptism for his followers. In Matthew chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, and John himself was even shocked by that. He said, you know, I ought to be baptized by you. You know, why are you coming to me? And Jesus says, let it be so, so that all righteousness might be fulfilled, right? So why is Jesus getting baptized? Well, there's several reasons why Jesus goes to him to be baptized. First of all, like baptism does with believers, baptism symbolized a shift in Christ's life and in his ministry, so to speak. Prior to his baptism, Christ lives the life of an ordinary Jewish carpenter. Nobody knows him as the Messiah. He goes to work every day. He just tries to be a good Jew and, and to uh, live obediently to his parents. But when he gets baptized, that old life ceases. And he now takes on a new role that is holy. Of course, he's always been wholly committed to God. But now in the way that he lives, the things that he does, the mission, his purpose, his drive in life is all about proclaiming the glories of God and pointing people to Christ. In reality, that's really what baptism is supposed to do for every believer. It symbolizes that shift. Now I am living my life wholly committed to bringing glory to God. The whole of my life is to serve God and to point people to Christ. Of course, Christ also gets baptized. Because as we know from the book of Hebrews, right, he fulfills the office of high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest had to undergo that ceremonial cleansing. Christ undergoes that ceremonial cleansing, as it were, before stepping into that high priestly role. And thus, baptism should be also done by the followers of Christ. Because we are commanded in places like 1 Peter 2.21, there Peter says Christ left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Christians are commanded to follow Christ's example. What he did, we do. The way he spoke, we speak. The way he treated people, we treat people. Christ began his life of ministry with baptism. So we ought to also do the same. And it makes sense in light of the fact that 1 Peter 2.9 says that all Christians are a holy priesthood in the Old Testament. The priests were set apart by God to wholly devote their lives to the service of God. They underwent a type of baptism, a ceremonial cleansing to identify them as having been set apart. Thus, Jesus commands that this is what his apostles are to do. We read that in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So first of all, it's always important to understand that the Great Commission is not just about evangelism. So many Christians make that mistake. They think Great Commission, they think evangelism, sharing the gospel. The Great Commission is actually, there's three parts of the Great Commission. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's the evangelism part. Proclaim the gospel. The only way people become disciples is by hearing the gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So once they become disciples, they are to be baptized, and thirdly, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, Jesus said. Thus, the Great Commission is about evangelism, baptism, and discipleship. These are the three things that every believer is to be engaged in. Sometimes that's a shock to Christians. We know that we're all supposed to be sharing the gospel, but we are all supposed to be discipling. Evangelism, baptism, and discipleship. Thus, we practice baptism because Christ commands it by both precedent and by precept. That is, by both example and by command is why we as believers undergo baptism when we profess faith in Christ. Third question that oftentimes comes up is how is baptism connected to the new covenant? I mean, as we've been going through this series, God of covenant, the unfolding mystery of redemptive history, and we've been walking through the various covenants, how is baptism connected to the new covenant? Why talk about baptism at this point in the series? Well, it's connected to the new covenant in at least two ways. Number one, this is an ordinance or sacrament, another word. This is an ordinance. It is a sacrament that is specifically given to the New Testament church. In other words, we do not find baptism commanded anywhere in the Old Testament. I said that it has its origins there, but baptism, as we know and understand it and practice it in the New Testament church, is commanded only in the New Testament, and it begins with John the Baptist. Secondly, the meaning of baptism is inextricably linked to the new covenant as described in Jeremiah 31. Right? Jeremiah 31 prophesies about a new covenant. When God makes this new covenant, he says it's going to be different than the previous covenants. It won't be like the other covenants. How is it going to be different? I will write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds. No longer will they say, know the Lord. For everybody who is a part of the new covenant community will know the Lord. They will be in a personal salvific relationship with God from the least of them to the greatest of them. And then he says, and I will remember their sins no more. Thus, the meaning of baptism is inextricably linked to the new covenant as described in Jeremiah 31. And that is what we're going to talk about next, the meaning of baptism. And you'll see what I mean. As we understand the meaning of baptism, we will see how it is connected to the new covenant described in Jeremiah 31. So what is the meaning of baptism? And there are five that I am going to outline for you this morning. First, baptism symbolizes dying to sin 
by means of our dying to Christ. Baptism symbolizes. Okay, so if you are sitting in this room, and I think all the ones we baptized are no longer... No, I see. I see one up back there. If you've been baptized... Uh, understand that this message is not just for those who are going to be baptized. It did not simply prepare it for those who were going to be baptized this morning. This is important for all of us to remember. Why was I baptized? We tend to forget that. How often do we really sit and reflect upon our baptism? Not as much as we should. Not as often as we should. Our baptism should continue to have significance in the life of the believer every day of our lives. Because first of all, it symbolizes dying to sin by means of our dying with Christ. Jesus himself in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 50, describes his coming death, his crucifixion, which we are going to really be focusing on here in the next few weeks as we approach Passion Week. He describes his crucifixion this way, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. A baptism to be baptized with. He says, how great is my distress until it comes about. Paul Now, I don't know if Paul was familiar with those exact words. Maybe he was. Luke was a companion of Paul. Paul uses similar language in Romans chapter 6 when he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul just finished in these first five chapters, particularly in chapters uh, 4 and 5. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he lays out that everyone is under the judgment of God. Jews and Gentiles, we're all condemned. We're all sinners. Then in chapters 4 and 5, he hits hard and heavy on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So then he raises the obvious question. If we are justified by faith alone, if we are truly saved by faith alone, then does it really matter how we live? Can't we just continue to live in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. I love the Greek. May genoito. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, right? He's talking about our spiritual baptism into Christ, in union with Christ, by faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul reminds the church in Rome, remember your baptism. What was that all about? If you're going to continue living in sin, those who undergo public baptism are saying to the world, if you've been baptized, you, are, you said to the world at that moment, I have died to my old way of life. I will no longer live for selfish desires, for my selfish needs. 
I will at this point begin to live for Christ. It's for that reason that baptism, <coughs> baptism is a serious thing. It really is. Even though baptism in the New Testament is not attached to any kind of warning like we see with the Lord's Supper, it does not change the fact that your baptism was a very serious holy ritual to undergo in the eyes of God. Because when you were baptized, you were saying to God and to the world, I am no longer going to live for myself. I am going to henceforth live for the glory of God and in obedience to your word. If you are not doing that after your baptism, if you really weren't saved when you got baptized, because you could fool the entire world into thinking you were saved, and if you got baptized and continued to live in your sinful, selfish past desires, then in your baptism, you made a mockery of God. And understand, my friends, God will not be mocked. Number two, baptism. Baptism symbolizes being circumcised in our hearts. In Colossians chapter 2, just two verses, verses 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul writes this. He's writing to believers, the church in Colossae. And he says, in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. How so? In the Old Testament, circumcision was a physical thing made with and it was external. But you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. How? By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The word flesh there is a Greek word, sarx. It carries the predominant meaning of our sin nature. And he says, this is how you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands. By putting off your sin nature by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him, with Christ, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him up from the dead. Now, when Paul says, when Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism, that this is how this circumcision of the heart, this spiritual circumcision that's internal of the heart, performed by the Holy Spirit without hands, when he says that this is how this happens, Paul means one of two things. He either means that it is through the act of baptism, it is through the waters of baptism that regeneration takes place and the circumcision of the heart takes place, or he is saying that baptism is symbolic of the internal working of the Holy Spirit and having died with Christ and being circumcised in his heart. It's one of those two. If it is the former, then we need to tear out the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and burn them. 
because they make no sense. And Paul is contradicting himself. Clearly, Paul is referencing our spiritual immersion and death with Christ. But the point is that this is what baptism symbolizes, being circumcised of the heart, having our flesh removed from our heart and thereby having a heart that is sensitive to the things of God. I know it's graphic. The Old Testament was very graphic, but that was the point of circumcision in the Old Testament is that the Old Testament Jews were to have a heart that was sensitive to the things of God. Sadly, most of them did not. This is what makes the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 different. God says they will have this. In the new covenant, the laws of God will be written upon their hearts and they will have a desire for the things of God. Paul will go on to continue using that kind of language. In chapter 3 of Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, right? If you've been buried and raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He'll go on to say in verse 5, put to death, therefore, in light of the fact that you have died to your old way of life and been resurrected to walk with Christ. You've been circumcised in the heart, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions of the flesh, and he goes on to list all kinds of other sins. And then he says in verse 10, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of God after the image of its creator. You see, because even though we've been circumcised in the heart, By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have put off the old sin nature. There is this constant battle, and there's this desire to want to put it back on, isn't there? And we do that often. We put it back on. We want to live in the flesh. But the Holy Spirit has given us desire to put it off and to keep putting it off because of what Christ has done for us. Thirdly, baptism symbolizes deliverance from God's Baptism symbolizes deliverance from God's wrath. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 18 to 21. Peter writes this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now listen to this. Baptism corresponds to this, Peter says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not, he clarifies what he's saying, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Like with Noah, Peter wants us to understand 
Baptism symbolizes having been delivered by God from the wrath of God through water, the waters of baptism. Noah and his family were saved by God bringing them inside the ark, which, by the way, is a foreshadowing of Christ, right? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul drives home the fact that we are saved by being in union with Christ, by being in Christ, by being enveloped by Christ, and thus it is by being safely inside of Christ that we are brought safely through the wrath and the judgment of God. Noah and his family are brought safely through the wrath and the judgment of God, which is the flood. And thus Peter is making the correlation that our baptisms is symbolic of that. It is a picture that we have been delivered like Noah from the wrath and the judgment and the anger of God through the waters of baptism. But Peter wants to make sure that he's not misunderstood. Notice how he quickly corrects himself. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection, through the work of Jesus Christ. In other words, baptism in and of itself does nothing. The only reason baptism will have any meaning for you is if in your baptism you are making an appeal to God in your conscience. I need you to deliver me. Fourthly, baptism represents our being purified by the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3, Paul writes this to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? He saved us by the washing of regeneration and re- the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So here is where we see that symbolism from the Old Testament being carried forward and brought into the New Testament. That is, that baptism symbolizes having been cleansed of our sins, the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit, just as the priests in the Old Testament, when they were consecrated to God for His service, wholly given over to God and to live their lives in service to Him and in service to the people of God. They were, they underwent this ceremonial washing, this ceremonial cleansing. And that is what baptism is designed to symbolize, that we have been cleansed of our sins. Fifthly, baptism symbolizes rebirth. Notice again in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, same text. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of 
regeneration. How are we washed? Through being born again, through being regenerated, by the washing of regeneration and renewal. And how does this come about? By the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he's having a conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you remember that? Nicodemus comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, well, how is that? I mean, how can a man who is old be born a second time? How can I go into my mother's womb and be born twice? What do you mean by that? And Jesus will say in verse 5, Truly I say to you, that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. That which is born of the spirit is of the spirit. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of water and the spirit. Now, there's some debate as to what he means by water. My take is that he is referring to physical birth. Right? You can't be born spiritually unless you're first physically alive. Right? You have to be physically alive before you are spiritually alive. So there is these two births. There is a physical birth and a second birth because in the first birth, that first physical birth comes forth with water, right? Lots of water. When a woman breaks, her water breaks, there's a gushing of water, and then the baby comes forth. And thus, baptism symbolizes our second birth. Born through water a second time. There is this image of a rebirth. And now I am alive to Christ and will ever live for his glory. Hence, the sacrament of baptism is the rite of initiation into the new covenant community. The rite, the word rite simply means a ritual, a practice, something we do. It is the rite of initiation. It is what we do to be brought into the visible covenant community. Regeneration is how we come into the invisible covenant community. It's how we come into the invisible church. At the moment that we are regenerated, we become a part of the invisible church. Baptism is the rite of initiation into the visible covenant community And the seal, it is the seal of being inside the invisible church. Thus, those who repent and profess faith in Christ are the only proper biblical recipients of baptism. Because if we understand the meaning and the symbolism of baptism that we've just gone through, that baptism symbolizes being cleansed of our sins. It symbolizes a rebirth. It symbolizes being circumcised in our heart. It symbolizes having died to our old way of life and being resurrected to walk in newness of life. Then let me say this again. Those who repent and profess faith in Christ are the only proper biblical recipients of baptism. And this is the consistent pattern that we see throughout the New Testament, right? In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the very first command that Jesus, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth 
after he's baptized, after his wanderness in the wilderness, when he begins his ministry, the very first thing Jesus says in Mark 1.15 is this, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent is first, and believe is second. First, we repent. Acts chapter 2, when Peter gives his famous sermon at Pentecost, at the end of it, everybody is cut to the heart and they're convicted. What must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. But notice, he first says, repent and then be baptized. Repentance ought to precede baptism. Again, in Acts chapter 8, when Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch from Isaiah 53, and the Ethiopian eunuch believes and says, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. There's water. You believe. We baptize you. When Peter gives the gospel to Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10, we're told that they believed and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and Peter said, what prevents these people from being baptized with water? The answer is nothing. Because they heard, they repented, they believed, and then were baptized. And again, we see that in Acts chapter 16 where Paul gives the gospel to Lydia and to her family. And we're told that they all believed. And the Lord opened up their heart to receive the gospel. And Paul then baptizes them. Repentance, belief, baptism is the consistent pattern that we see in the New Testament. It's the order of Jesus' command. The Great Commission, go and, number one, make disciples, and number two, then baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thus, baptism serves as a visible reminder of how we should live. Baptism serves as a visible reminder of how we as Christians ought to live throughout our lives. This is why church members must be baptized before joining the visible church. Because baptism is the visible sign and seal of those who are inside the church of God. For all these reasons, baptism is a means of grace. It is a means of grace. How so, and what do I mean by that? I know, I use that phrase a lot, but let me give you some clarification. Baptism is given to the church as a means of grace, not by itself. By itself as an act, it does nothing. You're just getting somebody wet. Baptism is a means of grace as it works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in that it points people to Christ and it fortifies the faith of God's people. And in that way, it and the Lord's Supper are a means of grace, and there are other means of grace that have been given to the church. Preaching is a means of grace. But so also, preaching by itself is not a means of grace. And I know because I've preached the word on many occasions to people who sat in front of me in the church, and they heard the word of God every Sunday for a very long time and then finally decided that they were going to leave and go back into the world and live in sin. It made no difference to them because the preaching of God's word only has effect as it is accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Thus, just as the preaching of God's word, just as the preaching of God's word is an audible presentation of the gospel, baptism and the Lord's Supper is a means of grace because baptism and the Lord's Supper are a visible and physical presentation of the gospel. Baptism presents the gospel in visible form. The Lord's Supper presents the gospel in visible form. And in that sense, the two sacraments given to the church are a means of grace to us. It's kind of like when we received our name at birth. And I'm uh, borrowing this illustration from a favorite theologian of mine, Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, it's a good illustration. And when we were born, you know, we're, we're given a name at birth, whatever your name is. First name, middle name, last name. If you're Hispanic, you might have six names. Um, but you're given a name at birth. And that name does nothing for you, right? It doesn't do anything in your heart. Whatever they name you makes no impact in your heart and in your life and on your character. Nonetheless, as you grow through life, that name will have a significant impact upon your life. Because it identifies you with who you belong to. It connects you with your past. It connects you with your family. So even though there's no internal impact that happens in your heart and your soul, nonetheless, your name continues to have a bearing on your life, and it defines much of who you become and who you are and how you live. Baptism is designed to do the same. In and of itself, it does nothing in your heart. It doesn't impact your character. But when you are baptized, in being baptized, in that public profession, what you are saying to the world is, I am taking upon myself the name of Christ. I am now hereby identifying myself as Christian. And I will ever live in light of the name of that I have taken upon myself to be identified with Christ. And thus, in that way, baptism ought to impact how you live every day throughout your Christian life. In the end, baptism is a sign and a seal of the new covenant given by God to the church. Now, by seal, I don't mean, and theologians don't mean, it seals you into Christ. Okay? Again, it does nothing for you spiritually. It's the Holy Spirit that seals you into Christ. Baptism does not seal you into Christ. So we don't mean seal in that way. We mean that it is a seal in the sense of in ancient times or in medieval times, often when a king would write an official letter or he would send a letter or write a document or an official notification. He might drop some wax on it, and then he would put his seal into that document. 
and that seal authenticated that document as belonging to the king. That seal said to everyone, this document belongs to the king, and it came from the king, and the seal demonstrates that. Baptism, in being baptized, in making a public profession of your faith in baptism, that is God's way of putting his seal upon you and saying, this is now my child. They belong to me. And you are saying to the world, I belong to God. I am taking upon myself the sign and seal of the new covenant community. But ultimately, baptism reminds us of what Christ has done for us. Ultimately, baptism is not about us. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us. Because we are only able, we are only able to die to our old way of life because Christ first died for us and was buried for us and was resurrected for our justification. Thus, ultimately, baptism is about Christ. It is a visible proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God. Again, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to do for your new covenant people what we could never do on our own. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for our sins, being raised for our justification, and we thank you for giving to your church the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper as a means of grace to us, as a way of pointing us back to you, reminding us of the gospel and what you've done for us and thereby fortifying our faith. Father, we pray that for every believer in this room, Lord, we pray that as we depart from this place, that we would ever remember our baptism and what it means and what we were saying to the world and that we would strive to live in light of our baptism.